If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in John chapter 1. What we're going to study this morning is foundational to really understanding our identity, grasping who we are. We will lay what I will call a theological foundation and we'll see the practical reality based on what the scripture tells us. I have never had it happen to me. I imagine it would be a terrible thing if I ever had my identity stolen. Now, in real life, I can't imagine that anyone wants to be me, but I think out there in the internet world, all they want is my identity. In fact, as I studied, I found the Federal Trade Commission received more than 1.1 million reports of identity theft last year alone. Did some real damage, too, to the tune of $8.8 billion, stealing somebody's identity. And because, of course, we are in the internet age, did that make me sound like an old guy? This is the internet age, because we have arrived at the future. This is not just an American problem, it's a global situation. $8.8 billion of damage in our nation alone. Now stop and think for just a second, as a Christian, by definition, you and I are navigating life with someone else's identity. We are now Christians. We have adopted the identity of Jesus Christ. No, we did not steal it, nor were we born into it. We have been adopted into the family of God. John is writing, obviously it's chapter 1, the introduction to his gospel, his view of the ministry of Jesus Christ as inspired by the Holy Spirit. I want you to know the explicit language that he uses in verse 12. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons and implied there as daughters, the children of God even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As we began this study last week, Who Am I?, we rooted ourselves in Antioch where we were first called Christians. And we saw the identifying characteristics of a Christian as they were named in Antioch. And now we arrive this week with a deeper understanding of who we are, our identity, which was not stolen, but rather gifted to us. God gave us the identity of a Christian. We were given even his son's name. We are now joint heirs to a heavenly fortune because we have the name Christian. How did we get there? How am I, me, a child of God? As I study through the Bible, I see this laid out and it is intensely helpful. The first thing I note is we have been adopted. Now, I don't know about you, perhaps you had the greatest life ever and have never had a bad day. How many of you would describe yourself like that? Nobody. Now, stop for a second. You may have had a day where you were in trouble with your parents. 
You may have had a day where your wish list outpaced your parents' income and you would allow yourself to fantasize. What if they aren't my real parents? What if I was adopted? And what if somewhere out there there's a mega wealthy couple and they're my real parents? What if there's a set of parents out there that would never tell me no, that would always let me do what I wanted and would give me whatever I want? What if I'm actually adopted? How great would my life be? Now you say, you've actually thought that of your parents numerous times. It's the wealthy part I focus on. See, now I'm also a dad. I'm assuming my kids have felt the same emotion toward me at one point or another. Here is a scriptural reality for every believer that is gathered in this room this morning. You have really, technically, truly been adopted. In Romans chapter 8, listen to what the Apostle Paul says, verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, get this, But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together." What is immediately noteworthy in those verses is that four times over, we as believers are referred to as children of God. Sons is used implying children of God. What in the world does it mean to be adopted into the family of God? You recognize that sin passed upon all men by Adam, our in effect earthly father. In our lost condition, Jesus would declare that we are of our father, the devil, who happens to be the father of lies. This has a lot of implications. But at salvation, the Holy Spirit of adoption indwells, occupies us, and we are brought into the family of God. One wrote this. I think it's worth listening to. Adoption is one of the most beautiful and moving nuances of our redemption. We are no longer enslaved to the fear of not measuring up to the requirements of the law. We are freely accepted into the beloved as adopted sons or daughters, as it were, of God. Now, adoption is not a word that is used often within Scripture. So when it is used here in Romans 8, it is signifying something uniquely special. It is there so that we focus on it and we fully understand. In fact, it never appears in the Old Testament. Only five times in the New Testament, three times in the book of Romans, and twice here in Romans chapter 8. And we might understand adoption in our world, but I think we actually have to rewind the tape back to this Roman understanding that these listeners, these readers would have grasped. One said this, in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son would perpetuate his father's name and inherit his estate. 
He was no wit. That is not in the smallest degree inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. He was gifted full rights of Roman citizenship. Now again, there are implications to this theologically speaking. When you were adopted into this Roman family, what was implied was that you received full rights of Roman citizenship. Now grasp this reality. We, as we dwell here now, according to Ephesians 2, grasp that we were, before Jesus Christ, we were outsiders. We were strangers. We were aliens. We were foreigners. But we have been brought near by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ so that we are no more outsiders, strangers, or foreigners. We are fellow fellow citizens in the eternal kingdom of heaven. We have that here and now. We have been adopted. Imagine that we will inherit our Father's fortune, and it is vast. We are joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, in the mind of Paul, we have entered into the actual, literal, very family of God. That's what he's telling us. We don't deserve it. But in His amazing love and mercy, God chose us. He brought us into the family. We who were lost, we who were helpless, we who were poverty-stricken and debt-laden sinners have been adopted into the family of God and all of our debts have been canceled. Our heavenly inheritance awaits us. We, according to the Scripture, theologically speaking, at salvation, we are adopted, and it is the Holy Spirit that bears that witness. Secondarily, I note, here we go into the practical fallout. How does the reality that I have been adopted into the family of God actually change my day-to-day life? Here is where it lies. We have an Abba. You say, yeah, I remember them from the 70s. We, I have like an ABBA CD. I have a vinyl. How many of you have an ABBA vinyl? This is actually a hand up. Good. Hey. That's not the kind of ABBA I'm talking about. This is a unique Bible word that declares a relational status that we have with our Father in heaven, and it is wrapped up in our awareness of our adoption into the family of God. Note again in the second part of Romans 8.15, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby, because you have received the spirit of adoption, you now cry, Abba, Father. That means the indwelling Holy Spirit actually prompts within us. It resonates within us that we have a relationship with the God of heaven and He is our Father. No Jew ever addressed God as Father. Even the names of God were used more and more sparingly in public speech and prayers as the Pharisees got a hold of all of the rules. I have always found it interesting that even in writing the names of God, the scribes, when arriving at the name of God, would set their quill down, ceremonially wash their hands, pick up a special quill, write the name of God, set the special quill back down and pick up the other quill. They revered the name of God. That's the good aspect of that. The really sad aspect of that is the distance that it conveys. 
when Jesus Christ arrived, that view of God in heaven changed. And I don't mean that it changed for the negative. I don't mean that it became a lighter thing. God not viewed as Father in the Old Testament. Jesus arrives on the scene and in every instance save one, He addresses God as His Father. 195 times in the New Testament, Jesus, in his prayers and in his public speech, addresses God as Father. The only occasion that we see that is an outlier is in Matthew 27, when from the cross, Jesus cries out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When Jesus taught the disciples to pray, he could have obviously conveyed anything. But what Jesus communicated to them in Matthew 6, 9 was this, After this manner, therefore pray ye. Here's how you should pray. Pray like this. And he says, Our Father which art in heaven. That's how Jesus taught us to pray. Pray like this. When you start to pray, at the onset of your conversation with God in heaven, acknowledge your relational status with Him. Acknowledge that He is your Father in heaven. That word R is just three little letters, but it's incredibly significant. Think of the grace of Jesus when He says to us, when He says to His disciples, when He says to Peter who will deny Him, when He says to these failing fleshly vessels, you when you pray, say our Father. You grasp what Jesus is saying do you grasp the acceptance? Say, our Father, which art in heaven. That word, Abba, it's an intimate word. One Greek author said it's a sitting around the kitchen table family word. It's a sitting around the kitchen table family word. I don't know how many in this room are fathers. I don't know how many in this room are dads, but I would venture to say when you became a dad, everything changed. Your identity, your awareness, your view of life adapted based on the reality that you were a dad. Comprehend something about Creator God in heaven. He views Himself as a father. He views Himself as a dad. That's a stunning understanding. I am separated from my daughter. She's interning in Washington, D.C. And I will text her as often as I can without being one of those dads. You understand what I'm saying? Trying to let her have some independence, trying to remind her that if she needed anything, I will get in the car and drive up there and punch people in the necks for her. Just that fine balance. And I'll text her stuff like, hope you're having a great day, beautiful girl. And she will, on occasion, she'll simply fire back, love you, daddy. And you say, well, at 21, she probably should phase out of calling you daddy. Don't tell her that. Because when I get it, I still smile, and I still have that warm sensation, and I still think, yep, that's who I am. Now let this sink into your heart. Let this bust through our thick skulls. Jesus says, when you talk to my Father which is in heaven, 
who gave his only begotten son because he so loved the world. When you begin your conversations with him in prayer, understand this is a sitting around the family kitchen table mode. It is your dad. It is your papa. It is your daddy. This is an intimate relationship. That is stunning what Jesus says. Further, historically, one said, not only would a Jew never consider addressing God as his father, he would consider it presumptuous to enter into God's presence and call him Papa or Dad. Jesus combines the two names together when he prayed in the garden. He put them together. And when he does so, they show the intimacy as well as trust and respect. To put it in contemporary English, this is why we would start a prayer, my dear Heavenly Father. That's not just something that we spit out because it's customary. It is a declaration of our relational standing. My dear Heavenly Father, I am about to engage in conversation with you. By what right do I call Him my dear Heavenly Father? Knowing me, it is the Holy Spirit in me which resonates and compels me to call him such. The privilege of approaching the sovereign Lord God, creator of the universe, and calling him my father should never be underestimated by a Christian. This should change your life. One writer said this, and I think it's beautifully written. He said, you sum up the whole of the New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. Then he said this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. If this does not dominate your view of God, you do not really comprehend your identity in Christ. You don't fully grasp what you have and are as a Christian. It should change everything to acknowledge that you are a child of God. When Jesus says this, here's how you pray. You are accepted in the beloved. The Holy Spirit within you resonates. You say with me, our Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. We know that Lord's Prayer. What does that speak to? It speaks to my boldness. That speaks to my boldness. Get this, I can, according to the New Testament, boldly go before the throne of grace. I don't have boldness because of who I am. I don't have boldness because of what I have done. I have boldness because I am His child. It not only speaks to my boldness when I go to Him, it speaks of His disposition towards me. This helps me greatly. When I was lost in my sin, I was at enmity with God. But in salvation, I am now brought into the family of God. When once I was His enemy, now I am His child. And He has a gracious disposition toward me. How many of you are already working on Christmas shopping? How many of you are working on Christmas shopping for the pastor? Anyone? All right. Actually, hands up. I'm already pumped. All right. 
How many of you desire when Christmas rolls around to really make something special happen for your kid? I mean, there isn't a parent in here that's like, you know what I want? I want them to wake up Christmas morning with no excitement whatsoever. I'm putting no planning into this. I'm spending nothing. They're miserable and I'm going to be miserly. I'm going to sit there on that morning and I'm going to gleefully sit in my chair and watch them come down and see nothing under the tree. When they turn to me with tear-filled eyes, I'm going to go, yeah. Yeah, that's what I think of you. No presents. Is there any hot chocolate? None. Candy cane? None. Grinch Christmas in your house. As a parent, you are already beginning to think towards your child in an extravagant way. And to be quite honest, most of us limit our Christmases not because we don't want to spoil our kids, but because we lack the funds. Now allow that view of God in heaven to settle on you. He has a gracious disposition towards you. He desires to see you happy. He views you as his child. He's proud to say he's your dad. God in heaven. You who are sinful. He is positively viewing you graciously. Now stop for a second. I don't know your historical relationship with your earthly father. But it's possible you think to yourself, boldly go before my father. I'm afraid to even walk in the room with my dad. Boldly go before my father. I'm afraid to ask anything of my dad. Gracious disposition toward me. I've never known that a day in my life. And that's where this aspect of the prayer comes in. Our father, which art in heaven. That little phrase in heaven indicates something. He transcends this earth. He's not of this place. He's not from this place. He's not cursed by the sin of this place. He's not tainted by the humanity of this place. He is our ever-transcendent Father. Don't view your relationship with God through the filter or lens of your relationship with your earthly Father. His disposition towards you is gracious. He accepts you. In the beloved, when he sees you, he sees you as he sees Jesus, righteous. When he hears you speak, he knows your name. And he wants you to make your request known to him. This is intensely special because we have been taught that our dad is only happy with us when we're high achievers. Our dad is only happy with us whenever we do exactly and always and every time what he wants. But I'm saying to you, your father, which is in heaven, has a gracious disposition towards you. The transcendence of God. It's spoken of again and again throughout Scripture. I won't take the time to read all the verses, but grasp this. When you speak to God, the omnipotent King of kings the powerful creator of the universe, whom we fear and revere and honor at the same exact time we're talking to our loving Father who we have an intimate and personal relationship with. He is near us at all times. We have been adopted. That's the theological cornerstone of my identity. I am a child of God. The practical implications of that childhood of God's status means that I have an Abba relationship with the creator of the universe. And the last thing I'll note is this. It also means that I have an assignment in life. 
John, who initially told us in John chapter 1, that he gives us the power to become the sons of God. He'll write three letters. In 1 John 3, he says this, Behold, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. Behold. When you see that word, behold, he's literally saying, look at this. Look at this manner of love. Look at the kind of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. It's, it's gifted to us. It's not something you earned. It's not something that you merit. It's not something you deserve. Behold in amazement this kind of love that the Father has gifted to you and to me. He bestowed it on us. And then he says this, that we should be called the sons of God. Be amazed by this. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. There's a lot packed in there. I'm amazed as I read it when it says we are called the sons of God. The Greek there is implying it is God the Father that is doing that calling. He is proudly saying, Chris is my son. God is saying, you are my child. He's introducing us as his child. That is stunning scripture. And what we're learning here is as God introduces us like that, the world may call you many things. People around you may call you many names, God in heaven calls you his child. He knows you. He knows every secret you have. He knows every skeleton in the closet, every story to be told, every flaw, weakness, strength, failure, win. And he still says, that one is my child. You ever wanted somebody in your corner who had kind of untapped, unbelievable resource, you have a heavenly father. You ever needed somebody on your side who had experience that goes beyond your life experience and your wisdom? You have that in your heavenly father. In fact, he says, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We know this, we're in the family. And the day is coming where we will be with Him. We know that. It's a point of conviction. We shall see Him as He is. What that means is we're going to know it's Him when He appears. That's a weird thing for John to say, isn't it? He is literally saying when the rapture occurs, for those of us that are here, you are not going to be called up and to join together with Him in the air and look around and go, now which one is Jesus? Which one is Jesus? You will know Him. You will see Him as He is. That's implying when you enter into that heaven, when you enter into that space at the rapture, you'll know Jesus. And you will see Him and know it's Him and you will be like Him. It doesn't mean you'll be a little deity. It doesn't mean you'll be a little God. But it means you'll have that uncorruptible, glorified body. And then the assignment is wrapped up when He concludes and He says this, And every man 
and every woman that hath this hope that one day they'll be with him, what does he do in this life? Well, he purifies himself, and his standard of purity is Jesus himself. He purifies himself even as he, Jesus, is pure. What does that mean? If we have the hope for the coming of Jesus and the reunion with the family, then here and now we purify ourselves. That's a reference to the ceremonial cleansing. What it is simply is it's the discipline of godly living. You concern yourself with sin in your life and you root it out. You pursue holiness and you pursue godliness. One said this, purifying ourselves involves the daily battle to cleanse what we do with our minds. Cleanse what we do with our thoughts, our speech, our eyes, our hands, our disappointments, our fears, our injuries, our enemies, our plans, our desires, and on and on. The question is, are we going to daily purify ourselves or daily inch closer to impurities? If you lay the cornerstone that you have been adopted into the family of God and you understand the practical implications that you have an Abba Father, then you grasp the assignment that you should pursue holiness and godliness because you should resemble your family. You should look like your family. Now, this was interesting to me. As a pastor, I get to see a lot of new babies. Not all of them are beautiful. Some of them are, some of them aren't. I happen to have two incredibly beautiful babies. It's all due to their mother, but beautiful. It's still beautiful. Not every baby is beautiful. Have you ever seen a baby and you've been put on the spot, they'll hold the baby up and they'll say, now, who does she look like? I don't know, like a... Kind of like a pink raisin? I don't know. I don't know. what. I don't know. I can't tell who she... You, does she look like her dad? I don't know. Her dad's 280 pounds and 5 foot 11. No, not really. There's a study that backs this up. Children, in general, do not look enough like their parents for a resemblance to be detected. The University of California at San Diego did a study. And a psychologist decided to study parent-child resemblance. Got photographs from 24 different families. Each of the parents provided a picture of one of their children at age one. And then the parents provided a picture of themselves currently and also a picture of them as close to age one as they could produce. They even went so far as if the parents had older children, they would show them a picture of them at 1, at 10, and at 20, and the parents gave them a current picture and them as a toddler. The researchers then recruited 122 test subjects and asked them to look at all of the pictures. Look at all of the pictures, and they were asked to match the infant's picture with the adult the child most resembled. This backs up what I'm saying. In every case but one, the subjects were unable to match the offspring with the correct parents at a rate significantly higher than simply by chance alone. It means this. Babies at one don't really look a lot like their parents. And if you're in the home and you're saying, oh no, she's pretty like I am, no one else sees it. And science backs it up. And if there's one thing we've learned in the last few years is trust science. 
Can I just simply apply this in closing? I think too often the case with God's children is we just bear no family resemblance. If you held up a picture of your life and you showed it next to Jesus, who you are joint heirs with, there wouldn't be a lot of people who say, yeah, I see the family resemblance. If your godliness and your pursuit of holiness was to measure up to your heavenly Father who says, be ye holy as I am holy, people would look and they'd say, I hear what you say. You say you're a Christian. You claim to be a child of God, but I've got to be honest. Other than by mere chance alone, I just don't see the family resemblance. Likeness is the proof of relationship. If we say we are God's children, then we should prove it by godly lives. I am a Christian. That's who I am. I am a child of God. That's who I am. The spirit of adoption bears witness in me. I'm in the family of God. And it declares that I have an intimate relationship with creator God, king of kings, God of gods, Lord of lords. He cares about me and he knows me. And I have an assignment to purify myself like Jesus, his only begotten son was pure. I should bear a family resemblance if I am a child of God. Would you please for a moment just bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.